Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The mysterious realm of the unknown, where many things are not as they appear to be. Tonight, the KGRA Digital Broadcast Network takes you to the often overlapping worlds of science and unexplained phenomena, which bring us to the very edge, edge, edge of reality. And now, here's the man who brought UFOs to the United Nations, your host and guide into Edge of Reality Radio, Lee Spiegel. Welcome, everyone. You have once again successfully crossed over the line and into Edge of Reality Radio on the KGRA Digital Broadcast Network. I'm Lee Spiegel, host of these proceedings, still from an undisclosed location somewhere in North America, and it will stay that way. Are you among the many people who wish that more scientists would take an open mind about UFOs, or as some now like to call them, UAPs, which stands for Unidentified Aerospace Phenomena. Although I've heard some people refer to it as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. We'll have to check that out with our guest tonight. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and you can count me among those who believe that there are scientists in many countries who are studying UFOs and who have been doing it for many years. In most cases, doing it quietly, unofficially, and sort of under the radar of public scrutiny. But there's now an organization that's looking to bring science to the front of UFO studies. My first guest tonight is Robert Powell, who has a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry, nearly 30 years' experience in engineering management in the semiconductor industry. He's a co-holder of four patents related to nanotechnology and a member of the Society for Scientific Exploration. Robert is co-author of the book UFOs and Government, a historical inquiry. He's also an executive board member of an organization called SCU, or the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. We're going to hear all about that tonight. Robert, welcome to Edge of Reality Radio. How are you tonight, sir? Hi, Lee. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Well, I, I, I'm happy that you're here, and uh, we have much, much to talk about, uh, about your background and what you're doing now. Let, let's first begin with um, what the idea is for the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. What, where did it have its germination? Well, uh, the, I call it the SCU for short. Okay. Uh, we created the SCU 
in August of 2017. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization. We filed all the paperwork with the federal government. Um, it was originally created by myself and two other gentlemen uh, by the name of Richard Hoffman and Morgan Beale. Mm-hmm. And uh, Morgan's in Florida, Richard's in Alabama, and I'm in Texas. Just by co- coincidence, we're in the southeastern part of the country. Yeah. Um, the organization's purpose is, is to promote the scientific study of UAPs, or what some people refer to as UFOs. Uh, currently, we have 73 members. Okay. Um, 25% of those have PhDs, uh, 15% are international, uh, over 80% of the members have degrees in what's referred to as the hard sciences, which is physics, chemistry, engineering, mathematics, uh, biology. Um, so um, the background also includes people who formerly and currently work with NASA, uh, people with experience with Lock- from Lockheed, uh, and also in the semiconductor industry. Uh, several of us have experience in that area. You so know, it's when a I, wide array. When, when I first heard about the SCU, the, my first thought was <clears throat> that it sounded, to me, remarkably like the invisible college that Jacques Vallée uh, wrote about years ago, uh, back in the 1980s, and and it was a thing that that as, as you probably know, Jacques and Dr. J. Allen Hynek, they they brought together a group of scientists, scientific researchers who were actively investigating UFO cases, and understandably, many of these people wanted to remain anonymous, and I wondered if. That kind of rang any kind of a bell with you when when you and Richard Hoffman and Morgan Beale were thinking about creating SCU? Well, actually, we were not thinking of the Invisible College, which we are aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just thinking of it from the viewpoint that we want a scientifically based organization. And currently, of our membership, there's only 11% that are anonymous. Ah. Uh, the vast majority uh, have their names out and um, are not concerned that you know people know they're interested in UAP uh, and UFO phenomenon. I'm glad to hear that. That that's I mean, 11 percent might not sound like a big number to people, but in in this field, it actually kind of is. I think if you look at the percentages. Now, you mentioned international. How widespread is the SCU now um, that involves the 73 members? Uh, Well, we have across the United States. We have members in Canada. uh, We have the members. We have members in England, um, one in France, another another one in Holland. We have a member in India. Uh, I think that covers all the countries that we have members in. Okay, now, I'm curious about the types of people who are members. Like, do most of them quietly investigate UAPs because they may want to be anonymous? Um, or do the 11% that uh, 
want to help you with the investigations, but they still don't want their names to come out. How does that, how does that balance or imbalance work with who wants to talk, who wants to do the work? And, and, and in fact, another question related to that is, is everyone who's a member, uh, have they joined because they are actively investigating anything or they're just interested? How does that work out? It's actually a, a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some people who, such as myself, who actively investigate cases all the time. Uh, there are other individuals who've joined because they're uh, interested. Uh, there are a number of individuals who have joined because of the uh, recent incident uh, that involved the USS Nimitz carrier strike group that happened right. back in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of of scientists have joined because they found that case very um, kind of thought-provoking in terms of the reality of it. Uh, And and also, you know, now that we've found over 4,000 extrasolar planets, um, it brings it a little closer to home, the concept of, you know, what are the various possibilities that could explain uh, UAPs or the UFO phenomenon. Isn't it amazing? It, it just, it just only, it always seems to me that it was just, gee, maybe just a few years ago when we didn't even know of one exoplanet. <laughs> oh, you're exactly right, Lee. I mean, it was 1992 when the first exoplanet was found. I mean, that's less than 30 years ago. And prior to that, I mean, a lot of your younger listeners. Uh, to them, exoplanets seem kind of the norm. But if you go back 30 years, people felt, I mean, not just people, scientists, most scientists believed that we were unique, uh, that there was life here because we had a moon that created the tides, that Jupiter protected us from the asteroid belt, and that right. all these special things had come together. And that's why this is where life existed and that the likelihood of life elsewhere was quite low yes and and even even 20 30 years ago you hardly ever heard astronomers or or astrobiologists say things like we now believe that for almost every star or sun in the sky in our galaxy and in other galaxies they each have at least one planet in orbit around them. That's a big neighborhood of planets. Oh, I, I think I think you could safely say that just about every star in the sky has multiple planets. Isn't that amazing around it. <laughs> it's like, oh, so maybe we're not so unique <laughs> after well, all. <laughs> exactly, and and you have to take this into account also, Lee. When they say. 4,000 plus planets, those those are only stars and planets where the planet happens to line up between the Earth and its star so that it crosses between us and the star. Right. Uh, that's. Yeah. I think the percentage on that is roughly 10 to 15% of your stars line their planets up like that with us. And it has yeah. to be a planet close enough to the star that it significantly uh, can affect the light output from that star so that we can measure it. Yeah, and that's that's even that 
of aspect of science is quite remarkable that we have instrumentation even here on Earth plus the um, the instruments on board the Kepler spacecraft that's been discovering these exoplanets where as as like, like you just said the the way a star and some planets can line up so that we here on Earth can detect if the light output of the star sometimes occasionally dips, which is an indication that something is passing in front of it to cause that light to dip. And that would probably be a planet or two or three. And the fact that we even have technology that can tell us this is amazing. And I know in a few years, we're going to be launching the uh, the new the web telescope that's going to hopefully outshine Hubble with what it will be able to tell us. As I understand it, the, the, the new web telescope is going to actually be able to take pictures, perhaps, of these some of these exoplanets and be able to tell us a lot about what kind of atmospheres they have. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it may be able to do that on a few of the planets, uh, you know, depending on um, the, the amount of heat that that planet... Um, sends out as well sure. as the size and brightness of the star um, but but it is amazing we continue to improve um, in what we can determine i i feel confident that within 30 to 40 years we will be able to detect uh, specific chemical components within the atmospheres of planets uh, we can already do that to a certain extent right but um, I'm thinking more along the lines of actual Earth-type planets going around G-type stars. Yeah. Well, right now we have to deal mostly with uh, uh, small uh, dwarf stars uh, to find Earth-sized planets. Will you uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your work, and your education? And I'd like to know if there was anything specific that got you interested in the UFOs, like perhaps maybe a UFO sighting that you might have had? Well, I'll start with your your last question first. I've okay. never had a UFO sighting myself. Okay. I've, uh, I've probably interviewed over 200 people uh, who have had UFO sightings, and mm-hmm. I've studied the topic intensely for the last 13 years, but I've never had my own sighting. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at Chumba Casino casino.com no purchase necessary VTW, void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus um, my background is, as you mentioned my degrees in chemistry uh, and I worked in the semiconductor field um, I worked uh, over a chemistry lab also over uh, R&D lab where we had atomic force microscopes uh, near field optical microscopy all of the latest equipment uh, capabilities and I was fortunate in that I was able to retire early and that's what has allowed me to spend uh, these last 13 years uh, working intensely on the UAP or UFO topic 
tell me what what was it <clears throat> that that led to the creation of SCU and 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 how long ago? I know that you've been uh, an, an organization since 2017, but did the germ of it begin earlier than 2017? Yes, I mean the very first beginning was when I was a teenager, mm. and I read J. Doctor J. Allen Hynek's book, The UFO Experience: yeah. a Scientific Inquiry. Yeah, and of course he he lays it out in scientific terms in his book, and I read that, and the idea never left me, um, even though I was a teenager at the time, and so the. Um, I did not spend time during my early adulthood because, you know, you've got to raise a family, get a job, and do those things. Yeah. Uh, but now I've been fortunate enough to really put some time into it. Uh, and what uh, prior to being – to creating uh, the SCU, I was director of research at, at MUFON, and my objective had always been to – Get as much science into uh, the UFO field as possible. And um, I finally decided the best way to do that is to create an organization, you know, from the beginning, from the ground up, uh, where everyone who was part of that organization uh, looked at the UFO phenomenon in a scientific manner. Even back. In the days when you were first reading Alan Hynek's book, uh, The UFO Experience, and, and perhaps other books that he wrote, is there still, since then, do you think there's still a scientific stigma that surrounds the whole UFO, UAP topic? Like, like why are there scientists who won't come forward e even to speculate that there's a phenomenon at work here on and around this planet. Well, th there's definitely a stigma. Uh, there's a taboo in science almost about touching the topic. And, and I'll have to say, Lee, a lot of the reason for that is because of the way the media handles the topic. Um, and I'm talking about the national media. Mm -hmm. um, their interest is in something exciting that they can uh, sell to the public and get audience share, right? So they're not really interested in nitty-gritty scientific details on the topic. They want to hear about someone who claims uh, to have a photograph of a little gray or green alien, right? Right, yeah. And, and they play it up in a manner uh, so that it becomes silliness. And no scientist wants to be uh, associated with that and and that's the stigma um, that keeps science away from that keeps scientists away from this topic and and that's why we've created the SCU so that we have a place where scientists can discuss and study the topic uh, seriously and and yet <clears throat> we we're still talking about a phenomenon that's been around for many centuries and it displays similar technological characteristics today as it did back in the days when the writers of the Bible and other sacred books described the same things. And yet, this phenomenon doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. And yet, science still seems to be afraid of it. 
Why? Well, I, I think it is because of the uh, stigma involved. Now, I think that is starting to uh, depart a little bit. And part, part of the reason for that is, is when you have, for example, a, a Navy graduate uh, such as David Fraber who comes forth and tells his story of what he saw. Right. Now we should you, we should uh, you know let the listeners know uh, David Fravor was the commander of one of those Navy jets back in 2004 that uh, was playing tag with what's now become known as the Tic Tac UFO. Right, and he's an Annapolis graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, if I recall correctly, his degree was in oceanography. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a sharp guy. Yes, and. So, and and when he says he engages this UAP at close distance, and he's flying circles, and it's flying circles around him before it departs at an extreme speed, I mean, it's hard to, you know, to just discard what he says he saw. And then, and it's not just him, right? He had a co-pilot. And then there was another jet hmm. with a, a lieutenant commander of that same squadron along with that pilot. So you, you had four Navy pilots at two different angles, right. one jet that was engaging the object and one far off. So uh, those are the kind of um, cases that make you stop and wonder. Not, not, not to to mention. Besides the eyewitness accounts of the pilots, but we had the eyewitness accounts of the radar operators on the ships that were involved with the encounter. Uh, there was a lot of evidence that came out from all that. And and after we come back from our first break, um, you and I and my second guest tonight, another board member from SCU, uh, the, the three of us, we're, we're, we're going to talk about what went on and the fact that the two of you co-authored a scientific paper based on these observations at that time in 2004 based on the evidence that was gathered by the uh, the Navy pilots, the Navy radar operators, the eyewitnesses, and, and I'll be really curious. I think the audience will want to know what, what your analysis uh, showed. I, you know, I've... The other thing I want to ask you, you know, we've been hearing for years, we've been hearing about this new term to describe UFOs. It seems to be morphing into UAPs or unidentified aerospace phenomena. I've heard it also mentioned as unidentified aerial phenomena. Do you have any idea how that happened? And was there one individual who came up with the term UAP? I'm not sure what individual (laughs) may have come up with that term, but it's kind of like, you know, this all started with the term flying saucers. Yeah, yeah. And then that had a very negative connotation, and then the military changed it to UFOs. UFOs, yeah. And now UFOs has obtained a negative connotation, and and it's because (laughs) people jump to a conclusion that if you say the word UFO – that you're talking about little green men flying around in a spaceship, which is I, not, yeah, yeah. you know, which is not appropriate at all. So uh, we now have just used the term UAP just to kind of remove some of the stigma. 
Well, uh, yes, and we, um, we're going to hopefully get rid of some of that stigma here tonight. We are coming up on our first break, and uh, I want everyone to know that I've, I've been talking with Robert Powell of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to add another SCU member and scientist to our conversation. Uh, I'm Lee Spiegel on Edge of Reality Radio, and we'll be right back. Watts, a.k.a. Thought Continuum, shares a double abduction experience in her book, Catch Me If You Can, a story of alien abduction and culprit plunder. This 1976 true life account of a close encounter in northern Utah near Hill Air Force Base. Imagine driving home from the movies with your spouse when your car suddenly stops working, and it's in that very same moment that you realize... You are the only thing animated. Catch me if you can. The fifth anniversary edition with lead-in material for the upcoming release of Payback is a Glitch from award-winning author Kathleen Watts. Get your copy today. Log on to thoughtcontinuum.com. That's thoughtcontinuum.com. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless. Dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Hi, Matt Ray with America's First News here, and I have great news for those of you who suffer with debilitating migraine headaches, maybe a loved one or your child does. MigRelief, the nutritional migraine supplement everyone's talking about, now can be found at the vitamin shop stores nationwide and Meyer in the Midwest. For almost two decades, hundreds of thousands of migraine sufferers have benefited from MigRelief, and thousands of neurologists and headache specialists recommend it. Why is it popular? It's drug-free and addresses the specific nutritional needs of adults and children who suffer migraines. What's even better, MigRelief comes in a formula you can take daily and one on the spot as needed. So if you get migraines, get your life back on track. Go to MIG911.com. That's MIG and the numbers 911.com. That's also where you can read the testimonials. Or head on over to your local vitamin shop store nationwide or Meyer in the Midwest. If you get migraines, do yourself a favor. Change your life with MigraLeaf. Hi, I'm Whitley Strieber, author of Communion and the New World, lecturer and radio host of Dreamland Radio. Be sure to catch my show Friday nights at midnight Eastern Time right here on KGRARadio.com. 
for years. The KGRA Digital Broadcast Station has been your contact for live UFO paranormal talk radio worldwide. Bringing you the top names and research and investigations seven nights a week. Our listeners connect to the KGRA on various platforms like TalkStream Live, TuneIn, Spreaker, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and many more. Now, you can stream your favorite paranormal talk radio shows with our new fully integrated custom KGRA mobile apps for Android and iPhones. Listen to your favorite paranormal talk shows from any mobile device 24-7, free with smartphone or tablet. Utilize custom features to access news, show pages, archives, contests, events, and live interactive chat rooms. Set show notification alerts and never miss your favorite live programs. All free and available to download in Google Play or the iTunes App Store. This is the only way forward. This is The Edge of Reality Radio. Make contact. KGRARadio.com. And you are back on Edge of Reality Radio. I'm Lee Spiegel on KGRARadio.com. So far tonight, I've been talking with Robert Powell, the executive board member of SCU, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. And for those of you not familiar with the term UAP, it stands for Unidentified Aerospace Phenomena. And in just a few minutes, we will be joined by a computer scientist who's also on the SCU board. But, uh, but Robert, I wanted to continue with you. Uh, the investigations that the, the members of SCU perform, how do you go about deciding which cases to look at? Well, that's a good question, Lee. Uh, hmm. For us to look at a case, we need some hard data. Hmm. So, in addition to multiple witnesses, uh, we want to see you know either photos or video or trace evidence. An example being, uh, well, in the case of photos and videos, that's what we did with our analysis of the Nimitz Carrier Strike Force. Uh, we did that with a Puerto Rico case where we had video, and uh, we're in the process of doing it with uh, samples from Ubatuba, which is a uh, trace evidence case back actually from the 1950s. So, the that's what we need, those type of cases where you have something hard that you can actually analyze. And, um, and we're going to talk about both of those cases, too, the, the Puerto Rico one and the Nimitz case. Um, tell me, are there any international government leaders involved with, with SCU? And, and if there are, what, what's the general opinion or even speculation on the subject? Well, 15% of the SCU affiliates are of uh, international origin, but none of them are government leaders. Okay. Uh, is, now, is that just because you, you either haven't been in touch with any of the leaders or it's not within you know, their interest level to talk about this kind of thing? Well, um, I mean, in terms of being in touch with government leaders we've been in touch with various congressmen but uh 
as an organization, we have not gone out and tried to recruit uh, government leaders. Okay. Uh, we've we've grown the organization basically as people come to us. We have not actually gone out and tried to actively recruit a lot of people, and that that was done on purpose because. You know, sometimes if you grow an organization too fast, then you have problems and it, you know, doesn't succeed. So we wanted to make sure we put everything in place and slowly grow the organization. Okay. Um, Compared to other UFO organizations, um, as as a comparison, describe SCU and what it offers to helping science and the public to learn more about UAPs? Well, uh, for starters, we have a a website that's called explorescu.org. And on that site, you will find a number of papers uh, that have been created by SCU on the UAP topic, as well as papers by other scientists that we feel have done a good job of um, a particular case or paper. Uh, So your listeners can find uh, that information. Um, Additionally, the difference with SCU is that the majority of our membership are people who have scientific scientific backgrounds. And so that makes it easy for us to drive the organization in a scientific manner because that's what everyone in SCU is used to doing the type of operation. Um, when you have people that are not used to that, it, that makes it a little more difficult uh, to drive your organization in a scientific direction. Hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the difference between SCU and you know MUFON or <coughs> other organizations okay. from the past. Now, w- without Without naming names, because we don't want to point any fingers at anybody, can you tell me what the difference is between SCU and some of these other places that rely more on sensationalistic or unscientific attitudes toward the UAP subject? Oh, that's that's a touchy. <laughs> a touchy <laughs> I know, like question I said, without naming names, Lee. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um, people, a lot of people have good intentions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you really have to, you know, probably one big difference is that we don't depend on um, donations and membership. We don't, not donations, we don't depend on membership fees. Okay. So we don't have to be driven by what, uh, people who have become members of our organization need or want. Instead, uh, people that become part of the organization are are what drives it, rather than the organization's need for money. I mean, I remember when I first got interested and started my own research into UFOs, and this this goes back to 1973 when I began, and I remember back then there were several other UFO organizations more than there are now, and and there was always 
always the the backstabbing, the nitpicking, the name calling uh, among the people who ran these organizations within their organizations and against other UFO outfits, as I call them. And it's like nobody ever really seemed to want to share information. There was never a sense of, oh, sure, we've got a nice collection of, of photographs that we believe are real. We'd love to share them with you. We'll, we, in fact, we have a, a variety of people that we've done interviews with. We'd love to offer you those interviews so that you can publish them in your organization portfolio or uh, there was never that sense and and i'm just wondering from your point of view do you get that sense today is there is there more of a sense of wanting to share from one place to another well within scu we definitely want to share and for example all of our reports are available uh, to the public on our website so we don't if, – if we investigate a case – now, if it takes us one and a half years, like take the Nimitz case, for example. Mm -hmm. We began investigating that case more than a year before the New York Times ever broke that story. Ah, okay. And now it took us uh, – we did not publish our report until I believe it was March of 2018. So we worked on that report two years before publishing it. So while we're working on it, we can't really publish it. But once we finished, um, then we publish it to everyone. And it, the final report was a 270-page report on the Nimitz Carrier Strike Force incident. As, as, the, as the SCU is relatively young in its existence, what would you envision – as its long-term goals? Well, I, th I think our, one of our long-term goals is, you know, for the organization to continue to grow where we have, say, 200 uh, scientists that are part of the organization and that we are publishing uh, multiple papers every year on the topic. And by, by publishing papers, I also mean papers in uh, academic journals, and do you have, for, for people who are going to be um, looking at your site, are there any rules or restrictions if somebody wants to become a member of SCU? Is, are you only accepting membership from people who actually have scientific credentials? No, not necessarily. I mean, uh, any organization needs people who are good at doing things, right? Yeah. So you always need someone who, for example, is a good webmaster. Mm. You always need someone who is a who is good at media and video. And those individuals, you know, don't necessarily have uh, science back. You know, science backgrounds. Um, so okay. we have we have um, you know we can use help from individuals who are not necessarily. Uh, scientists, but the bulk of the organization is scientists. And and do you have right now um, a specific target audience for SCU? Our our basic target audience is the scientific community. Okay, as well as the public and the media, but um, where we're really trying to make the most impact is with the scientific community. Okay, so but it's primarily science, but you're not 
excluding non-scientist people. Is that correct? That, that's absolutely correct. That's why on our website, anyone from the public can go and look at the reports that you know we've written. And you know, overall, Robert, why do you think that the scientific community should even take UAPs seriously? I guess the same reason you you take any scientific phenomenon that you can't explain uh, seriously uh, because you want to learn more. Um, the part of the problem, I think, and you know, we don't know what the root cause of the phenomenon is, mm-hmm. right? But everything that I have seen from studying it indicates that it is some unknown intelligence. Now, where that unknown intelligence comes from, the root you know, source, we don't know. But there's a certain, and this is an opinion on my part, okay. um, thing within human society where we're used to being the top of the totem pole, right? I mean, in the beginning, we thought the sun revolved around the earth. Right. You know, we finally gave up on that idea and realized, (laughs) okay, uh, the sun is the center. But we, even up until only 150 years ago, uh, we felt that the sun was the center of the universe. And then we realized, oh, okay, no, it's, it's... it's one star in a galaxy, but we must be the center star in that galaxy. And, of course, now we know we are just out on the arm of the galaxy. So our physical uh, prowess, you know, has gone, but we still can hold on to the belief that we are uh, the dominant species within this area. And if there are any other dominant species somewhere else, they can't get here because no one can travel fast enough due to, you know, distances that are in light, measured in light years, right? So that's what we still cling to. <laughs> I know, and and I, I always love that topic of conversation, and we'll we'll even get into this uh, in another few minutes. the 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 whole idea that science uh, always thinks that what's going on, what what our level of knowledge is right now, is the peak of what there is that's reality, and yet history has shown us over and over again that we're wrong. You know, I mean, I think Stan Friedman, the late great nuclear physicist Stan Friedman and and Kathleen Martin, I believe they co-wrote a book together called like Science Got It Wrong or or something like that, where everything we've, we've thought we knew at any point in history regarding science, we got it wrong because something always came along and said, no, see, here's the real truth. Uh, yeah, science is a great tool, and but throughout history, um, you know, science—it's it, like any other organization, right? You've got you've got your bureaucracy and where you are, and it it takes a sudden a certain nudge to move to the next point. Yeah. I mean, if if Einstein hadn't uh, had Planck as his friend, uh, he would still be a patent technician but Planck 
pulled the strings to get his paper to get Einstein's paper published. Mm. Uh, otherwise, someone else, some time in the future after that, would have finally figured out what Einstein figured out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, what, I, what I'm going to do now, um, I'm going to uh, bring in our second voice guest tonight, uh, who is also on the SCU board, and his name is Peter Reale. He has a master's degree in electrical design, engineering, and computer science with a specialty in telecommunications and network and information technologies. And uh, Peter... Can you hear me? Welcome to Edge of Reality Radio. How are you tonight, sir? I'm good. Can you hear me? Oh, loud and clear. Thank you for being here. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, you know, as as with uh, the conversation that I've been having with Robert uh, earlier, t- tell us about your work and, and your educational background and how it brought you to SCU. Well, um, uh, Lee, um, I, um, uh, I, I have always been interested in uh, you know, in science and those kind of things. But I have a degree, a master's in uh, electrical engineering and computer science from UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I worked uh, as an engineer for quite a few, quite a few years, as also Robert did in Silicon Valley. I worked for, uh, you know, a lot of startups and uh, a few larger companies, uh, Rome, IBM, uh, and, um, uh, some fiber optic companies and, and mostly in telecommunications and networking uh, design. I was a hardware design engineer and then later become a program manager. Uh, you know, so that, that was my background. Okay. And um, now when did you first get connected up with SCU? Did you know someone who was already a member or did you read about them? How did that connection come? I, I actually uh, found out online. I, in, in uh, let's see, it was about uh, October of 2017. I, I think uh, it, um, Robert said it started, they started in March or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think I connected around with him because I saw, I don't know, I was uh, surfing the web and I came across the SCU looking for members. And what intrigued me was that they said they wanted to do a scientific approach to it. And I'm very much in favor of that. You know, I uh, want to apply logical principles to understand this mystery, uh, you know, that, that's around this. And, and so what is it about the mystery, Peter, the, the whole UFO, UAP thing that that has caught your attention, and for how long have you been interested in this? Well, um, I think I, I, when I was in high school, I read a, a book by Donald Kehoe, ah. uh, you know, uh, about, um, uh, I can't remember which incident, it's been a while, but, you know, it got me interested. I, I'd always been interested in space and science and those kind of things. And it, it you know, I, I like to read science fiction. But over the years, uh, you know, I had a career and family like everybody else. And, you know, you don't have time to really dig into it in your spare time. You read books and these things would come up. And what always intrigued me was... Uh, some of these people were very qualified and, 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 you know, why would they say these things when, you know, it was not really to their interest to, to really talk about it. Uh, it's fact, in fact, you have a lot of ridicule, even sometimes like a farmer out in the middle of nowhere, 
would talk about this. And usually they're level-headed people and they would describe something coming along. It's just hard to believe they make it all up. And uh, pilots, uh, all, all those kind of things, you know, very serious people, astronauts. Uh, but mixed in with a lot of it is a lot of nonsense. You know, it, it, it has a lot of people that, you know, get into it and they're really not, uh, you know, misidentified objects and those kind of things. So it's really a, it's a really confusing area to try and uh, make sense of. You know, you mentioned you mentioned Donald Kehoe. Uh, one of the first books that I ever read about UFOs was a book called Aliens from Space. Yeah. Uh, and that was written by former United States Marine Major Donald Kehoe. And what I always loved about the things that he wrote about and talked about, he was probably the first real serious UFO whistleblower, I believe. Yeah. And, and you know, he, he always put his name and his face on the line and his reputation talking about what he had learned in all of his years investigating UFOs, UAPs. And I, I was so honored to finally meet him and interview him in 1975 for a UFO documentary vinyl record that I produced. And, and he agreed uh, to the interview. And it was just amazing because I, I realized I was looking at a man who was like an icon in this whole field. There was nobody else like him in terms of really trying to stick it to those uh, behind the scenes. And uh, and I always just really enjoy it when someone like yourself says that you'd read early stuff by Donald Kehoe. Yeah, I it, it's it was easy to read those early years of someone like him and not be fascinated or turned on by the subject. Yeah, uh, I agree. What, what, is this something, or was there something specific that you felt that you could offer the SCU or to bring your expertise? To help investigate UAPs with a with a strong sense of credibility. Well, um, I I just wanted to participate, you know, uh, it, w with a group of people that were serious about this. I wasn't sure exactly what I had to offer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, about it. But I I'm, I'm certainly a logical thinker, and I, I'm pretty much of a skeptic, and uh, I I don't I don't. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just don't jump to conclusions without a lot of evidence. And I think that's uh, the field really needs that. You know, there's so much uh, jumping to conclusions and uh, without evidence. And so I, th these particular cases we, we uh, have have physical evidence that we can actually uh, analyze. You know, right. it actually has measurements and flare, the flare video. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I came in uh, the... The, the Aquadilla case, the Puerto Rico case, was already uh, in a analysis when I came in. So I mainly worked with Robert on the uh, Nimitz case. And uh, we spent a lot of time on that and a lot of analysis. And so, uh, you know, I'll put that in there. And when we, when we come back from our next break here in a few minutes... Um, I definitely want to get into both of those cases, the Puerto Rico case and the Nimitz case with both of you. Uh, but let me just ask you this before we uh, break away here. Have, have you ever seen something that you felt couldn't be explained by natural means? 
Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I, <laughs> okay. I, I have not seen, seen it, but uh, like I said, you know, uh, other people, credible people have seen them. So I'm willing to, to trust that and believe that, you know, that's the case. And, well, I'm glad that you, you take that attitude because isn't that a much more refreshing attitude than just d- than jumping on the ridicule bandwagon and saying, oh, no, what you saw had to be the planet Venus or it had to be the crescent moon or it had to be a lenticular cloud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, some of the explanations are just lazy. They don't really go into the analysis. You know, it, it's, uh, uh, you, you know, there's a lot of. I think fear underneath all of this, and if people don't want to, a lot of the skeptics, I think, are actually afraid, uh, you know, afraid of the of the implications of this. And, uh, you, well, know, t- well, uh, you know, tell, t- tell me, what do you think are the implications that would cause that kind of fear in skeptics or debunkers? Well, if there's something out there that's, I, and I believe we've shown there's something out there that's that's uh, not capable of being produced by current science. Then um, it, it's either some kind of undiscovered natural phenomena, uh, or it's it means there's something that's uh, out of control that can do things. Uh, what that is, we don't know. We know what it isn't. But, but whenever there's uh, something like that, I mean, humans want to know that they're in control. And, um, you know, it's it can be uh, fearful to your worldview that there's something out there that has greater capability than you do because you could be very defenseless. And uh, there's been no indication of anything like that. Uh, there's, I mean that I know, I mean, that I can directly say that they're dangerous in any way, but um, they exhibit uh, qualities that are beyond our understanding. And cap- if they ever were able to, or ever became hostile and, and had hostile intent, then mm. uh, we'd be in a lot of trouble, I think. And and yet here here we are on this little piece of rock, in this little corner of the galaxy, thinking that we're the smartest creatures around, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, I'm of the. I believe in the principle of mediocrity, uh, and that uh, Robert referred to that. You know, that in mm-hmm. the Middle Ages we thought we were the center of the universe, and there was a glass dome around the Earth. It goes back to Archimedes. Yeah. And then little by little, Ptolemy, we put some science into it, and then. You know, it wasn't until even 1928 they thought that the uh, Milky Way was a total universe, and then and yeah. then uh, they discovered that these other uh, there were other galaxies, and now that we know there's billions, hundreds of billions of galaxies out there, yes, and maybe there the universe are. is infinite. You know, and that brings us right to our next break. I'm Lee Spiegel, and you're listening to Edge of Reality Radio on KGRARadio.com. We'll be back in a few. unhealthy and gross. 
Bugs, I hate bugs. We keep a clean home, but occasionally bugs show up. Well, I found something that is tougher than bugs. Orange Guard. From contact, it kills bugs. Plus, Orange Guard kills hidden bugs and keeps new bugs away for weeks. I know. I use Orange Guard. Plus, all of the ingredients of Orange Guard are on the FDA generally regarded as safe list. Orange Guard may be used around food, humans, and pets. It promotes a healthier planet, and here's a bonus. Orange Guard cleans where it's sprayed. Plus, it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Orange Guard. You can get Orange Guard at Ace Hardware. And listen, folks, Orange Guard is tougher than bugs, and it's safe to use. Go to OrangeGuard.com. That's OrangeGuard.com. Hey, everybody. Rachel Ray here. Nothing brings a bigger smile to my face than cooking up a big meal for the whole family and lots of friends. But there's not enough room at my table for the 17 million kids in our country who struggle with hunger. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks collects surplus food to give hope to hungry kids. But they can't do it without your help. Support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Okay, nurse, let's get this man to the ER stat. Right away, doctor. We see this every day. Heart attack or angina pain due to blocked and clogged arteries. Chelation can remove obstructions or blockages from arteries and help avoid painful and expensive surgery. Now there's Angioprim. It's a liquid oral chelation product that you take with juice. You start to feel the results fast. Angioprim increases blood flow all over the body. And that means more energy and strength to take on the day with less aches and pains. 60 years of research has gone into chelation. And Angioprim is the result. A safe and easy way to unblock your veins and arteries from buildup that slow circulation. Paging Dr. Jones, please report to the emergency room right away. Log on now for a special radio offer from Angioprim. That's angioprim.com slash radio. A-N-G-I-O-P-R-I-M. Angioprim.com slash radio or call 877-882-7221. That's 877-882-7221. Hello, everyone. I am Race Hobbs, head of programming here at KGRA. Wanted to stop by and let you know, over the course of the last six months, you've been hearing ads on the radio station promoting our appearance at a conference in Big Bear Lake. We will not be appearing at that conference this year. On Christmas Day, I received information from the conference promoter that will not allow us to go forward with our appearance there. Even though we promoted it for six months, Grant Cameron, L.A. Marzulli, and a few other KGRA clients and staff will be there. The KGRA radio station, myself, Bird, Warren, and the team will not be there this year. So I wanted to let our listeners know that we've been promoting we will be there for six months. Due to circumstances beyond our capacity to control, we will not be at Big Bear Lake this year. That's the bad news. The good news is we will be in California this year appearing at the biggest conference there, and that's Contact in the Desert. Go check out the lineup at contactinthedesert.com. KGRA Radio is a title sponsor of this massive event, and we are looking forward to seeing you there. There's only a few more days for Super Early Bird, So get in while the discounts are in place, folks, and come see us in California at Contact in the Desert in May. Visit contactinthedesert.com for more information, and we hope to see you there. 
Thanks for listening to the KGRA, and from all of us, we hope you're all off to a great new year, and we look forward to seeing you live on location at the many events we sponsor around the country. So from all of us here at KGRA Radio, thanks for listening. Find the podcast on iTunes, iHeart, and Spotify. KGRARadio.com This is the only way forward. This is The Edge of Reality Radio. Make contact. KGRARadio.com Welcome back to Edge of Reality Radio on KGRARadio.com. I'm Lee Spiegel, and tonight my guests are Robert Powell and Peter Raoli of SCU, an organization that investigates UFOs or UAPs. Did I say Raoli? I meant reality. Oh, reality. <laughs> reality. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, what did I just say? <laughs> well, it went out live, and I apologize. How about that, okay? Uh, by the way, I, I want to I ask both of you. Um, do do each of you have your own preference of either the word UFO or UAP? Um, Robert, what do you think first? Personally, I, I don't have a, a big preference. Okay. U, UAP for me, uh, UFO's got too many, uh, you know, tags on it. Ah, okay. Uh, and and it's, it's so weird because I don't even know who first came up with the term UAP, although I like it. it it's nice. Um, but it, but the actual words themselves don't sound much different. UFO, UAP. It's like okay, don't we have other things to consider besides which word is better? But I just thought I'd throw that out at you for a moment. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I think the military also uses AAV, anomalous aerial vehicles. Mm. You know, uh, you know. Uh, so there are other terms, you know, but uh, we all know what UFOs are. You know. Yes. Um, and I would now like to talk about because we've we've sort of skirted the issue on this particular case for for those people out in the audience who don't quite remember. Just over two years ago, the New York Times broke a really interesting story that many have considered was a game changer in the whole UFO field, uh, and it's it's about. First of all, the main thrust of that story was that the the New York Times published a story that revealed how the Pentagon admitted conducting secret UFO investigations, and they even released a few films to the public. And the game-changer part of it was, was that every single news media organization covered the story for months, and it's still hasn't really stopped getting references to to that whole thing. So within the story of the Pentagon saying, yes, and several years ago we had a six or seven year investigation of UFOs, that Nevada Senator Harry Reid helped to raise $22 million to, to fund it. But then part of that story was this thing that happened off the coast of San Diego in November of 2004, in which Navy fighter pilots and radar operators from the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group had some pretty close encounters with objects that displayed remarkable technological characteristics, some of which were filmed. So, 
Uh, we've been talking a, a little bit about this, and at what point did did both of you decide? Let's do an analysis about it. Let's do a paper. Let's do something scientific about this. So, uh, Robert, why don't you start us off with that, and then Peter, you can jump in. Okay. okay well, ac- actually, Lee, I, I started. We started working on it before the New York Times ever released it to the public. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was actually late uh, 2016 when I sent the first FOIA requests to about a dozen different Navy agencies. And so that was the point where we began our data collection efforts. Well, let me ask you, let let me just interrupt you. At that point in time, how did you know about this when it hadn't been in the New York Times at that point? Well, I had found uh, there was a guy uh, named Paco, if I pronounce his last name right, Chichiri, okay, who had written an article in a Navy blog. And I came across that article in the middle of 2016. So I read it, and once you've been in this field long enough, you can kind of read and tell when you're – you know, you're reading an article that has legs on it. And this this article had all this information with some names in it. Uh, so that, that was sufficient that I started generating freedom of information requests. Uh-huh. Okay. And, um, and then after that, um, I actually went onto Facebook and started looking for um, sailors who had been part of the USS Princeton, since I knew that was the key uh, ship. Right, right. And so I actually uh, interviewed Kevin Day and Gary Voris mm-hmm. before they ever became really known to the media and to the public. And we should but, tell the listeners that you know these were not neither one of them were or pilots, but Kevin Day was uh, manning, uh, I believe, a radar console. Is that he correct? Was the, he was actually the senior chief, so he was over all of the radar console operators. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Gary Voris was over um, a different part of the ship. He's called a, um, I believe, it's called a fireman, mm-hmm. uh, but it has nothing to do with putting out fires. It, right. It has to do with the operation of the weapons and computer systems on uh, a Ticonderoga-class Navy cruiser. And so he, at at that point, when I interviewed both of them, uh, although they had served together at the same time on the ship, they were not – they had not discussed this between the two of them. um, So I was able to get statements from them independent of each other. And what, why do you think they agreed to talk to you back then? Um, I, I guess they just were uh, – well, okay, at the time they talked to me, the New York Times article had already come out. Oh, oh at that point. Okay. So that made it – right. That made it easier uh, it. for them to talk to me. Okay. Now I see. Uh, but but even even so, be, even before the Times article came out, you you got their names as a result of the Freedom of Information Act things that you were doing, right? Well, no, I got their names by going on to the USS Princeton Facebook site. 
And oh. I actually searched that site. And if you go on that site, and this is all in our report, yeah. those guys were talking about this back in 2007 and 2009. Wow. Uh, you can – all you do is you can cruise through there and you can see there were at least a dozen different uh, Navy guys who talked about it. But there were only three that I could get to talk to me. The other nine you know, didn't want to get involved. See, and and this is the kind of thing that I'm always telling people. When people say, why don't we hear anything about UFOs that's really credible? I always come back and say, look, the only way you're going to find out that maybe there already has been disclosure is if you put your own time into taking little steps, do your own little investigation, do some reading, look things up on the internet, and if you dig hard enough, you will find things, and that's exactly what you did. And that's great. Yeah. You know, when when I, uh, this Peter here, you know, when I came in, uh, Robert had already done these interviews, quite a few of these interviews, so some of them continued while I was in initial phases of this, but he had already had, uh, you know, audio recordings of, of some of these people that, are, you know, are totally our own, separate from, uh, you know, interviews, separate from, uh, you know, what has been done by other groups. And, uh, um, you know, Robert has a long history of investigating these things. I think, Robert, you wrote a book, didn't you, on uh, UFOs with someone else? Uh, um, yeah, years? UFOs and government. Right. Yeah. And so, you know. I, I'm in that area of investigation. I'm new to it, you know, uh, when I came in. So, uh, wait, wait, what I suggested in the board of director meeting was that we do a timeline to start with. Mm. And because there's all these reports and they differ somewhat because of memory and stuff. And so we had to collate all these reports and try and get the common knowledge and timing of all these events. And, uh, it took that took uh, you know a few months to do, but I think we got a pretty good uh, you know we we got finally got it down pretty well. So how do you determine what, like like what you just said, Peter, about how sometimes memories can be a little a little faulty about certain things and facts, and as you know, hard nosed skeptics and debunkers will always jump on that kind of a story. What do you mean you can't remember exactly what happened at ten minutes after twelve? This guy said it happened at uh, ten minutes before twelve, you know, and they'll jump on that as a way of trying to discredit a story. So how do you, how do you get around that? when you're trying to do an, a scientific paper on this kind of material? Well, we look for the common uh, thread that goes through all of the uh, reports. Uh, first, the quality of the people, you mm-hmm. know, it is a very highly qualified people. And then uh, things that disagree, we just put to the side. We try to emphasize the things that are pretty similar and that, w- and because they didn't pollute one another, you know, they, the interviews were taken separately before they, as Robert mentioned, before they'd really, uh, talk to each other, and so there's not that possibility of uh, cross changing memory and those kind of things. So you know that gave a consistent. There was a some you know a, quite a few quite a bit of consistency through the timeline, which gave confidence that you know we could trust this. You know, and in my opinion, anyhow. Yeah. yeah. And and so you, you're you're working on this paper. How long did it take you to do the actual scientific paper t- to its conclusion? Oh, I'd say, Robert, when you say a year and a, 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 you know, actual total time, 
I'd say a year and a half, something like that. Yeah, a good year and a half to two years. Yeah. Okay. And and based on your analysis, I mean, obviously, these people were not lying about what they experienced because there were so many people on board those ships that it's hard to keep something like that uh, and turn it into a giant lie. And so what were your conclusions about what these people saw, either with their eyes or on the radar scopes? Well, uh, we're still trying to, you know, uh, conclude what we saw. My take is we know what they didn't see. Uh, You know, the the usual, we call a null hypothesis, is that this was, in science, you have a null hypothesis and you go and try and prove it or disprove it. You know, and that was, this was a misidentified uh, conventional object of some kind or natural phenomenon. And we... So we went through analysis, uh, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, phys- using physics and um, whatever we could, you know, logical thinking, math and stuff, uh, and showed it can't be anything common. It, it, you know, in the area, uh, as, as Robert can point out, you know, that they clear that area uh, uh, when they have this naval group is having this exercise, they guarantee that no commercial flights or other kinds of airplanes in there. So the only known airplanes that could have been there is an F-18 and an E-2 Skyhawk. It's one of these things with a big dome on the top. Right. Those are the only kind of airplanes that were in the area. So you can go and analyze the accelerations and the power required and realize that there's no way that that those things can possibly do what, what they exhibited. Plus quite a few other things that, you know, can go into, or, you know, uh, acceleration and also power requirements, which I think is new to what most people analyze. You know, acceleration and velocity are important, but power—the power it takes to do these things—is enormous. Like on the on some of them, like a nuclear weapon or or multiple nuclear weapons, uh, kind of energy, and yet no sound or visible uh, reactions like that were ever noticed by anybody. It does you know, does that does that mean that what was spotted even on a radar scope, uh, as compared to what the pilots in the uh, the jet fighters were watching and were playing tag with some of these objects, does that say to you that whatever it was that they experienced and that was recorded on film or on radar, was this a technology in two thousand four? or even now, in 2020, that we or any other nation on Earth has in our arsenal? Uh, no, I, I don't. I mean, uh, we're, we're spending billions of dollars uh, developing uh, hypersonic missiles and, and uh, you know, advanced aircraft, the F-35, all these kind of things. And these things would far surpass anything like that. So, you know... Uh, it can't be a secret weapon. It'd be ridiculous uh, to spend money. Uh, if we had something like that, we we you know we'd be so far ahead of where we are now that it's you know it's it's you can't you know it's just ridiculous. So um, you know that that's my take on it. Uh, you know it it can't be an F eighteen or a or uh, you know any known airplane any in any foreign airplane because they're all pretty similar in their capabilities you know? and, and i 
I, I like to keep reminding people when I talk about this stuff. Okay, so we're talking about something that took place in 2004. But what about the same characteristics of flight that were described in classified memos from 1947. <laughs> I mean, did anybody have that in 1947? Well, I mean, you know, I've read some of the history of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the pilots that were flying uh, over Germany, uh, you know, and on bomber raids would see these things they call Foo Fighters, you know, yes. which, uh, you know, more like ball lightning or something like that, but they would track the plane and those kind of things but you know they they all thought it was a german secret weapon and the germans thought the same thing they thought yeah. it was uh, you know some kind of a secret technology and um you know that uh, they found out later that <laughs> yeah, that didn't exist you know it, it just was a mystery isn't it a like robert do you think it's a it's a presumption on the part of of people in general that uh it something must be a misperception of something else that whole thing i was talking to you about before how science gets it wrong until it's proven otherwise you know what i, I mean i i have a hard time believing that most scientists if they've studied uh uaps yeah would would try to argue that anything that had that type of acceleration was something we developed. And yet, th th is it that fear factor that we were talking about before the break that prevents a lot of scientists from being more transparent or open-minded about it? I, you know, I, I, um, I think it's a bad rap on science. I, I think that, I don't think that, I think most scientists are, are probably... You know, science works on a principle that, you know, they have existing, you know, they have certain theories, even relativity is a theory, you know, and they, they, they hold to that until something better it develops, you know, and you have to have evidence of it. And the, so, you know, it's, it's the, the right thing to do to maintain that, you know, uh, what we know that's been proven. And not to just go off on, you know, because skeptics, on the other hand, the kind of hard skeptics, you know, they they will, uh, uh, you know, just at the, they're looking for a reason to not believe it because uh, for whatever reason. But uh, some of them it's because, you know, they have a big following and they're, you know, they that's how they live. But uh, many of them, I think, just are, have closed minds. And uh, um, but, you know. Uh, you don't want to have an op too open a mind. I think I, I think it's Einstein said you don't want to have too open a mind so that your brain falls out. You know? <laughs> really? Did he did he say that? <laughs> I, I I think I remember somebody quoting that. I, I yeah, he was a humorous guy. He, he he was a regular guy. You know, he made a lot of jokes and stuff. But uh, I I may I may not be <laughs> that may not be. Uh, don't take me at, at face value on that, but uh, and, and anyhow, the, the, the you have to be skeptical, but mm -hmm. you have to be at the same time somewhat open-minded, you know, to be able to the, investigate the, something you know new. You know, the, you know not, 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 go, go ahead, go ahead, Robert. No, I'm sorry, I didn't say anything. Uh, I was going to say that that not long after the New York Times story appeared in 2017, another interesting alternative explanation 
came out, started to come out in the media, didn't go a long way, but I thought it was interesting where some people were speculating that what these pilots were seeing or encountering uh, was a form of countermeasures that were actually used as a test on the pilots and on the radar operators to see how they would react in a situation where something uh, amazing was happening that they were that they were facing that they had never encountered before but when in fact that these things were something that were somehow sent off launched from somewhere uh and had the ability to outperform our jet fighters outperform the radar operator scopes but something that had to really make them think well what's going on here let's see what we can do to stop this or explain this countermeasures like like what you hear about in uh dog fights where airplanes will send out their own countermeasures to prevent an incoming missile from actually hitting the plane the missiles will go after these countermeasures and so that was a theory that people were thinking about but my my response to that was well okay if they were countermeasures who was launching those who who had something that could outperform uh these jet fighters and again yeah, pro- I, you know yeah the problem is these objects t- had no wings they were capable of basically standing still yeah. or accelerating at high speeds right and that's not a technology that we have that capability that's like a quantum leap uh, beyond anything we have as we advance, it's always in little steps, just like in the semiconductor industry. I mean, it just took us years and years of grinding work to take a transistor that was 10 microns and get it down to less than one micron. It's, these aren't things that you flip a switch and there you are. And that's this – the technology demonstrated by those Tic Tacs is a quantum leap above where we're at. What was the conclusion that the two of you actually wrote at the end of this Nimitz encounter story? What did you come up with two separate conclusions or were you pretty much of a, of a single mind on what you wrote? Well, I think we're pretty much on a single mind that uh it's unknown, you know, it's you know, we're not saying what it is. I mean, it it's always possible you know that it's something that none of us have thought about you know it's some new thing but i mean it it, it's not something that uh, you know from the military it's not an airplane or uh or countermeasures too you mentioned countermeasures but countermeasures are usually like uh broadcast uh, rf waves that that mess up somebody's radar or something and make it look like there's something on there oh Uh, yeah you know, uh, and this is a physical object. I mean, uh, Fravor actually went down towards sea level when it was, uh, you know, circling around and saw an object that he, he, he said had machine-like characteristics. You know, it had, a, it had a definite outline. And even at one point, it had some little, uh, like, antennae or something like sticking below it. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it, it has structure, you know. And, uh, and, you know, and it circled around and then took off, shot off, you know, and that's not, a ca- you know, and, you know, the other silly thing about the countermeasure thing is you don't 
go and test on your own. Military is doing an exercise. Very dangerous to do something like that. I think, I think Robert has can talk about that. I mean, you know, the specifics of that. Yeah, uh, you know how dangerous that would be. Right. Yeah, that would be extremely dangerous. And if you're going to to do that, and you were trying to test something, you would test something uh, similar to what you would expect your pilots to see in wartime. You're not going to come up with some crazy test of an object. There's no way it could be Soviet, Chinese, or anything else. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention, uh, Lee. I I tell you what, can you hold your thought, uh, Robert, because we're we're right on the verge of our next break. So hold that thought, and when we come back, you can pick it up right there, okay? All right. Uh, When we come back uh, with Robert Powell and Peter Rialli of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, I'm Lee Spiegel. This is still Edge of Reality Radio on KGRARadio.com. We'll be right back. Kathleen Watts, a.k.a. Thought Continuum, shares a double abduction experience in her book, Catch Me If You Can, a story of alien abduction and culprit plunder. This 1976 true life account of a close encounter in northern Utah near Hill Air Force Base. Imagine driving home from the movies with your spouse when your car suddenly stops working, and it's in that very same moment that you realize... You are the only thing animated. Catch me if you can. The fifth anniversary edition with lead-in material for the upcoming release of Payback is a Glitch from award-winning author Kathleen Watts. Get your copy today. Log on to thoughtcontinuum.com. That's thoughtcontinuum.com. Okay, nurse, let's get this man to the ER, stat. Right away, doctor. We see this every day. Heart attack or angina pain due to blocked and clogged arteries. Chelation can remove obstructions or blockages from arteries and help avoid painful and expensive surgery. Now there's Angioprim. It's a liquid oral chelation product that you take with juice. You start to feel the results fast. Angioprim increases blood flow all over the body, and that means more energy and strength to take on the day with less aches and pains. 60 years of research has gone into chelation, and angioprim is the result. A safe and easy way to unblock your veins and arteries from buildup that slow circulation. Paging Dr. Jones, please report to the emergency room right away. Log on now for a special radio offer from angioprim. That's angioprim.com slash radio. A-N-G-I-O-P-R-I-M. Angioprim.com slash radio or call 877-882-7221. That's 877-882-7221. 
So, you love talk radio, then you'll love TalkStreamLive.com. TalkStream Live is always on 24-7 with the best streaming talk shows. Find your favorite talkers and discover some new ones. It's free, readily available online or on mobile with any smartphone or tablet. Finding your favorite talk shows all in one place has gotten a whole lot easier. Just go to TalkStreamLive.com. Be sure to download the free apps from Google Play or the iTunes App Store. More ways for you to make contact. Live Discord chat rooms. Live talk radio. Live video cast. Toll free HD phones. And coming this year, live streaming TV. Giving you more ways to make contact. Your KGRARadio.com. And we are back on Edge of Reality Radio. I'm Lee Spiegel, talking with two board members of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, or SCU, Robert Powell and Peter Reali. 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 You know what? I'll tell you, Peter, by the end of this night, <laughs> I'm, I'm either going to ask you to change your name or I'm going to change my name. How's that? Okay. Um, it's 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 Peter Reality. It's such yeah, an easy it's like word. Reality. Your TV show is reality, right? So uh, I know, like, and it's just like the name of my show, you know, Reality Radio. Why why can't I get that? <laughs> I'm doing my best. Um, so, um, Peter, just before the break, no, uh, Robert, before the break, you were go- going to make an additional point. Please continue. Right, uh, Peter had just told you that you know one of the things we concluded was the object was unknown. We don't know its source or where it came from. Yeah. The, the other thing we pointed out in at the end of the paper is this: everyone wants to know, okay, where where's the evidence to prove uh, exactly, you know, what is the UAP? Yeah. You know, where did it come from, or or what's its source, or what, et cetera, et cetera. The Nimitz case, as well as a case that happened in 2015 involving the USS uh, Roosevelt Carrier Strike Group, in both those cases, those Navy ships have the most advanced radar that exists on the planet, and we know that they captured those objects on radar, mm-hmm. right? If, if the Navy would provide that information to the scientific community we would know once and for all the exact speed of those objects whether or not they originated you know above our atmosphere we would we would have reams of data and so one of the things we said was that is what we really need we need that navy information which they've got Right, because this latest incident was only three years ago, so they can't say they've already thrown it in the garbage. Yes. Um, And here's the funny thing about all this. Your hardcore skeptics or debunkers, never once do they say or do they ask the Navy, where is the data so that we can put an end to the question of UAPs? Yes. Right? They don't want to put an end to it because then there would be an answer. And, you know, whether the answer is uh, positive or negative, we can get the answer because the data exists. Well, somebody somebody doesn't want this information released. 
And there, there is that old military mantra that says, well, if we can get one of these, if we can capture one of these, if we can find one that's crashed, maybe we can figure out how it works by reverse engineering it so that we have one of them all by ourselves and we'll control everything. Yeah, I don't, you know? I don't know if they think that or not, but their ability to figure something out if they were to get their hands on one is about as likely as Isaac Newton figuring out how to make an F-18 by seeing one crash. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, totally, I totally agree with you on that because it's, it's like um, if you take, for example, uh, if you were to take a group of missionaries and investigators into, let's say, the Congo, in Africa, and if you were to go to a tribe of 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 pygmies uh, who live in villages and they're isolated from each other from each different village, and if you were to go to one of these villages and 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 ask to speak to whoever is the smartest person in the village, for example, whether it's a medicine man, medicine woman, it doesn't matter. And if you were to say to them, um, we would like to be friends, and we would like to give you a gift, and, and you reach into your backpack and you pull out a simple, what we would call a simple, computer hard drive, and offer this little piece of metal and machine to the smartest person there and say, this is yours. Uh, you may do what you want with it. You may duplicate it. You can do whatever you want with it. What do you think the reaction is going to be? We don't know what this is. We have no idea what this is. Why are you bothering with us? Why are you insulting us with, with this kind of a gift? Um, we, you know, I think if we were to take the smartest scientists on our planet and give them a crashed UFO and say to them, Go inside this thing if you can figure out how to open the door, first of all, and reverse engineer this technology because we want to build a whole fleet of them for ourselves. Do you think anyone on this planet is capable and has the knowledge to figure out how it works? I don't think so. I just don't. Yeah. But the, the incentive there would be that uh, it's it's an existence proof, and it would give incentive. That the value would be that it it gives the incentive to spend the time to try and figure out how it works. It might take a hundred years, but uh, you know, uh, no one is gonna no one is gonna spend billions of dollars on something that may or may not be true. But if you know something really works, you know, you're gonna try. And that'll advance things just in itself, you know. Uh, I, I, yeah, I guess. <clears throat> I've, I've just never been a real fan of the idea that much of our current and recent technology is the result of alien products that have been reverse engineered. I, no, just, I, I, just I don't, don't believe that at all. I mean, yeah. That, that's mo- I think that's all nonsense. I mean, I've heard people say that, you know, like lasers were, you know, came from aliens or uh, LEDs came from aliens. But you, if you go into the research journals, you'll find that people were working on this stuff years before. You can find thousands of papers about people trying to make incremental progress. This is like what Robert was talking about, yeah. you know, in, in the transistor. The, 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 that didn't just pop up, uh, you know, uh, it, it uh, shockly. Uh, and many other, Shockley you know, was the first credited with inventing the transistor, but there were 
for other people all working on uh, you know solid state physics and stuff to uh, making diodes and those kind of things. And you know it, it was quantum mechanics that really made it possible to understand these kind of things. You know, so it, there's, this is stuff that this is the kind of lack of critical thinking that yes. we don't want in the SCU. You know, we want to, um, you know, do analysis, uh, you know, uh, scientific analysis. And, it, and we did that, you know, that on the flare video, which is an actual video, we can actually calculate the accelerations using simple, fairly simple math. You know, it's a high school trigonometry once you understand, once you take the time to understand how the flare camera works, what its uh, focal length is, and, uh, you know, uh, you can actually calculate uh, taking, like, what Fravor said was the approximate size, you can actually figure out the distance, and, uh, you know, if you assume, let's say that it weighs one ton, and that's, you know, an F-18 weighs, like, about 16 tons, but let's just, you know, if it has some mass, let's say, I mean, the approach we took is that this was some kind of an of a of a uh, conventional object using a conventional kind of how would you how would you reproduce the um, capabilities of this object with current known technology? Right. And right. the way you do that is with some kind of rocket engine or something like that, you know. And so you can apply the physics to it, uh, you know, and calculate these things, and outcome astounding. Read, you know, uh, like accelerations of a, th- uh, you know, for for some of them like uh, a thousand Gs, or for the flare video uh, between uh, forty and and maybe uh, one hundred and twenty Gs. That w- if a human were inside that, that would turn them into like cats. Like, <coughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, just you know, you'd weigh thousand tons of pressure on the person's body. You know. It, when, it's impossible, when, you know. When I when I when I when I hear these stories about the accelerations or something that can suddenly stop on a dime in in front of or to the right or left of your cockpit and then suddenly go underneath your aircraft and then just burst into amazing speed, it makes me think of this is what a lot of insects do. It's it's what a lot of creatures that fly are able to do even hummingbirds that can suddenly they they, they burst it looks like they're going 40,000 miles an hour then they can just stop and hover and and then move off to the right and move off to the left they don't die from this extra acceleration but but these things remind me of insect Technology, I guess, is the only phrase I can come up with. But, you know, it's that kind of, look at these movements. They're not impossible in the animal kingdom. So why can't we come up with something like that? I mean, it's it's just speculation on my part. But it's just, I love watching the, even the recreations. They do, the, the, the Tic Tacs and the thing do seem to have some characteristics of drones of some kind. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah. with very advanced technology, but I mean... Right. They they do, especially, uh, you know, especially like when uh, they they recorded them on the radar flying at uh, at like 80,000 feet. They would fly along at about 100 miles an hour and just steadily go, you know, we'd be groups of them moving along, uh, you know, and or just they'd stop and hover. Right. Yeah. We don't have anything that can hover without, uh, you know, without a propeller or, a, you know, like a helicopter or jet engines or something. They don't have any of that. 
and uh, yeah. uh, you know, very strange behavior that we don't understand. You know, yeah. There, there's another UFO UAP case that you've investigated, and which hasn't received a lot of publicity. Uh, it involved something that happened in Aguadilla, Puerto Rico in 2013. And it included a high-resolution video that was obtained. Uh, I don't know if John Greenwald was the first to get it of the Black Vault website, but he he got the, the video in 2014. I've seen the video, and it clearly shows a horseshoe-shaped object flying along at a pretty fast clip. Um, t- tell me Again, your experience of doing an analysis of this, because it's a really good video. I mean, that thing is clear. Um, what did you do to analyze this footage? Well, we got the video. Mm-hmm. Um, John, I'm not sure what copy John Greenwald got, but uh, we got the video in 2013 from okay. Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. So uh, we began analyzing it um before we tried to publish anything. So we first collected all the data and then analyzed it. Uh, The two parts of that video that are are most interesting, the speed is nothing, uh, you know, outlandish. I mean, I don't think it ever goes above 140 miles per hour. Uh, The three things it does that are very interesting, one is it's moving at night, without mm-hmm. any lights at low altitude going between trees, right? Mm-hmm. So that takes some pretty sophisticated ability, you know, at a, even at 80 miles an hour without hitting something. Right, uh, right. Then it goes into the water, which mm-hmm. that within itself isn't, I mean, we've got drones that can do that. But what it does is, is it goes into the water, it hardly slows down. It just barely, de- you can barely detect a drop in speed. So hmm. that's unusual. Yeah. Then it comes back out of the water, right? And now that becomes very difficult to come back out of the water at speed unless you have like a rocket motor or something to kickstart you out of the water. Hmm. And then the, the last thing it does that we have no explanation for is basically the object, as far as we can determine, split in half yeah. into two... <laughs> equally sized objects as it started with. So it's almost like mitosis in a cell when the cell gets larger and then it splits in half and then you have two cells. Amazing, huh? Uh, and that's kind of a, that's, that's been reported in other cases too, I think, that's split, yeah. Yeah, that splitting. And, uh, you know, this recent uh, case, this the, the, the Go Fast video looks kind of similar. I mean, it doesn't split in two, but it's it, it, it to my mind and i i don't know we haven't analyzed it but it, it looks like a similar kind of an object you know sort of a vague shape traveling along uh you know at at speed uh you know it didn't look like a very high speed right i don't know you'd have to analyze it to, to find out but it, it it also has a kind of amorphous look you know and it doesn't look like a tic-tac it's just a strange object <laughs> yeah and, and so I'm. So again, when you were analyzing the, the characteristics of this thing uh, over Puerto Rico, what what was your conclusion about what you were looking at? 
Well, we, we could not explain it with uh, a drone mm-hmm. or any other type of uh, known object. So, I mean, conclusion was the same as on the Nimitz case. I mean, it's unknown. Um, There's no way to explain it. it. Is it easy to assume or or is it a form of jumping to conclusions that these cases, the, the Nimitz and the Aguadilla, UAPs, that these cases represent some kind of technology that no nation on Earth currently has. Yeah, I'm I'm not aware of anyone who has a technology that can do that. Yeah. Splitting in two, something splitting in two, uh, you know, and flying off, you know, assuming that, you know, it's kind of violates the conservation of energy, you know, as we know it. You know, I mean, it's right. doubling the mass with no, no, no known way of doing that. Yeah. <clears throat> if if this is not something that originates on or above or inside our planet, is, is there a current scientific theory that either of you know about uh, of other places where these things might come from? I don't think there's a theory per se. I guess you could say there are various hypotheses, right? Um, there's all sorts of hypotheses you could come up with. Yeah. Um, I guess the one that I favor, which doesn't mean that I wouldn't change my mind, right? That's what a hypothesis is. You just take the facts at hand. Yeah. Uh, and you try to say, okay, what's the most likely uh possibility that fits the facts and then you try to disprove it or prove it um to me the uh, extraterrestrial hypothesis would be the one i consider the most likely but but you know it's important that people under you know that your listeners understand that doesn't mean i'm saying that's the answer right right i'm just saying that's if i had to bet some money right now and i was in vegas that's that's where on the casino table I put my wager. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, kind of con- I can concur with that. You know, I mean, that, that's – if it isn't – if we can't reproduce it and it, it is a, a valid – it is actually a machine of some kind or some right. kind, then who, invent, who invented it? You know, where did it come from? And, uh, you know, uh, that's the – that's the wonderful thing. That's the wow factor about this that keeps us interested, you know. Um, yeah. You so. know, the, the, the old standard explanation against the idea that, that some UFOs are somebody else's extraterrestrial spacecraft that have been visiting Earth for a very long time. The argument against that theory is that, well, the distances between here and where they come from are so great that nobody could make that kind of trip. And and one argument against that argument, I think, is that just because we don't know how to do that at this point in time with our current technology, it doesn't mean that somebody else with a little more advanced technology than we have hasn't figured out how to do that. Wouldn't you think? Well, you know, we even have theories. Uh, we don't know how to build them, but they're based on science that uh, would allow for uh, very high speed, uh, you know, transition through space, uh, how to warp space, those kind of things. They're actually NASA has some programs going on 
that are you know, developing that for uh, creating uh, wormholes and those kind of things. Uh, you know, it's it's still theoretical, but it, there appears to be no underlying reason why this can't uh, actually exist. And you know, so if you give, I, I mean, the likelihood that uh, civilizations are at the same level of development as we are. You know, is probably pretty minuscule. Okay, I'm assuming that there's millions of, you know, in the universe, millions of civilizations. You know, I, I just take that because I believe in the mediocrity principle that, you know, we're just uh, one among many. Uh, there's nothing special about us, and, and I think that's safe. Uh, we'd like to think we're special, but history has proved we're just, you know, uh, every time we think we're special, it turns out not to be. And so I think this is a case, uh, this also will be the case. I think that, uh, you know, in 500 years, uh, in, in 10,000 years, something 10,000 years ahead of us, like you were talking earlier, trying to yeah. understand it, um, I, I, you gave some examples. I, I gave something like, what if you, a genius like, uh, Arca, uh, you know, say Leonardo da Vinci, you gave him a cell phone. And say, and he would look at it and say, "Oh, maybe there's a liquid in there that makes that, <laughs> you know, uh, work." And then he might take out a hammer and try and break through the liquid and smash the whole thing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, it would have no chance because there's so many technologies that we, we haven't even, we may not even be aware of. You know, every day they're coming up with something new. You know, uh, new types of technologies. And so, you, you know, for us to say it can't be done is, you know, and not only that, but, you know, in our, we have a physics professor that kind of works with us. Um, and he's done some presentations on uh, traveling at less than the speed of light, you know, even some small percentage of the speed of light. It's quite possible to uh, travel through the universe and, uh, what happens, of course, there's a thing called time dilation, which is from uh, theory of relativity, where uh, the as you go closer to the speed of light, your time slows down, your time uh, is shortened, but uh, it remains the same on Earth. So, you know, what would happen is that these, uh, you know, you might go out and travel to some place in, in a, a year, and in thousands of years may have gone by on Earth. Now, that's probably not too desirable way to go but you know uh it may may mean that these communities are uh space-based and travel through space in communities mm -hmm. and have no home planet you know they they just travel around investigating things uh i mean that's total wild speculation i'm saying that's what's happening but i'm just saying there's nothing to prevent it, it, from science point of view that this could be developed in the future you know, something like that. Do, do either of you feel that UFOs or UAPs represent some sort of danger to those of us who live on this planet? I, well, I don't think so. Uh, there, there's a sociology paper that I, I read once. Um, I think a woman wrote it for a PhD thesis, and it was about would ET be... Um, you know, belligerent or not. And the basic theory was long before you developed the ability to travel between the stars, 
you develop the ability to destroy yourself, ah. which we've already developed that, right? Yeah, yeah. We probably have hundreds of years to go before we can travel to the stars. So if, if we're an aggressive species, odds are we will get rid of ourselves long before we're a threat to any other civilization. Uh, yeah, and I, I agree with Robert on that. Uh, although many people disagree, you know, like um, um, some scientists have said that we should be very quiet and not, you know, broadcast stuff into space because right. it could be. But w- one thing I, when I concluded my presentation at the, our last conference, I think that the, what they may be as a danger is in starting a nuclear war. And not not that they would attack us, but they would be misidentified by, let, let's say, between Pakistan and India or between uh, North Korea. Uh, their radar is maybe not sophisticated. And, uh, you know, these things come in looking like uh, they check them on their radar and they look like an attack or something. It might start a war. Right. Uh, I, I brought out this fellow. We've been very close to. A war. Uh, this fellow Stanislav Petrov, who was a Russian colonel, I think, uh, was in charge of uh, uh, the military base back in uh, the Cold War. Um, he was given orders that one of the Russian satellites, uh, it looked like there had been a launch from, uh, uh, I think, it, um, uh, you know, somewhere in northern United States of missiles. There are things that picked up. Well, it turned out it turned out to be a uh, reflect that their satellites, the equipment they had, uh, reflected light of clouds and, and the infrared, and they thought it was actually rockets going into space. Well, the, he actually had orders to launch a counterattack against the United States, and he he defied his orders <clears throat> and probably saved the world, you know, from a nuclear war because if well, they launched, we'd have launched. That's right, and it would have been so, uh, would have been the end to us. I I hate to cut you off or both of you because we're we're at the end of our show tonight. And uh, Robert and Peter, I want to thank you both for being here. Uh, you've added your voices to this necessary, incredible work of bringing the topic of UAPs to the public. And you know, you're giving scientists a place to work with other scientists who want to do this in a more transparent way. Um, for more information about Robert Powell, Peter Reale, and the SCU organization, check out their website, www.explorescu.org. Again, thank you both, Robert and Peter. I appreciate it. Thank you Thanks, for having Lee. us. Okay. Of course, I also wish a lovely evening to my lovely wife and muse, Lorraine. Thank you, Mr. Race Hobbs. In the live network studio, keeping us on the air smoothly tonight. Up next on KGRA, it's Fader Night on Fade to Black with Jimmy Church. Next week, I'm going to share some previously classified UFO documents with you that really help to shed a bright light on this subject. Thanks, everyone. I'm Lee Spiegel. This has been Edge of Reality Radio on KGRARadio.com. And until next time, let's remember to keep our minds open out there. You've been listening to Edge of Reality Radio with Lee Spiegel.
Any rebroadcast or duplication of this program or program content without express written permission from the KGRADB or Lee Spiegel himself is strictly prohibited. The Edge of Reality Radio Show, in direct cooperation with the internet website KGRARadio.com. To find more on Lee, visit his website at LeeSpiegel.com. Or find him on Facebook and Twitter. Edge of Reality Radio is broadcast every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern exclusively on KGRARadio.com.